All right, so let me ask you guys a question. I think it's one of the, the questions that humans have always asked. Why does suffering exist? And why is there pain? Why is there death? Throughout most of human history, I think people have struggled with this, and people, I think, they always go along two different lines. You have, a, you have two different biases. One of them is to, to point at the individual and say, because they act in a certain way or have lived in a certain way, therefore they suffer. And then I think the other bias is to look either towards society or toward our ancestors, which is a similar kind of role. Look toward others, and we blame our, our suffering on others. And this is, you know, shaken out throughout history in different kinds of people groups, you know, whether the insiders, outsiders, Romans, non-Romans, the poor, the, the rich. I think today you see it in sort of a conservative liberal bias. Conservatives tend to look toward individual responsibility. Liberals tend to look at society and as a reason for why we suffer. And actually, both of those are very appropriate ways to look at why we suffer. There's a lot of truth in both of those, especially when you can balance them depending on the situation. What's really cool is that uh, Jesus actually addresses this and kind of challenges both of those worldviews. So today we're going to be reading from John 9, and it's, it's entire, it's, it might be the longest narrative in the New Testament, I'm not sure, but it's an entire chapter. So I, I didn't um, burden anyone with reading through, you know, 45 verses just straight, you know, they start yawning or hiccuping halfway through. So uh, I didn't want to do the reading first and then to go through the whole thing as a story. So we're just going to go through it as a story together. If you're uh, an auditory learner like me, just listen along. If you would like to follow, it is in John 9, starting the beginning of the chapter, and we'll dip in and out as we go. So John 9, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And uh, I'm very aware of this video that I recorded for Facebook to sort of tee up this sermon, that I have certain words that I'm trying to avoid because I already said them in the video. But my, what, what comes to mind is what a tragic question, that people would look at those who were disabled all throughout history and say, who sinned, them or their parents? And this was a very common thing in the ancient world. You know, what an ugly question. It's like, see that person that's suffering? What's wrong with them? It's, it's classic victim blaming. And uh, in my experience, I think this same question, why is there suffering, why is there pain, might be one of the number one or possibly number two reasons that people either never follow after God in the first place or they fizzle out of a life of following after God. When you ask them about their life of faith or maybe why they've left a community of faith, people will first give you the answer that they want to give you. You know, they'll give you whatever sort of is the, the argument of the day, whatever um, popular thing is being talked about. But if you if you just sit there and you're present with them and you go deeper, eventually they'll admit very quickly that that wasn't the real reason. The real thing that drove them away from a life of, of following Jesus was pain. They can't square why does evil exist, why does pain exist, why do we die, why would a good God allow those things? And uh, I, it, what's interesting is this, these two different biases uh, um, this belief, it, it seems ancient the way it's phrased here. This, is this man blind because of his sin or another's? But I think it's one of the oldest views. It's one of the most uh, ancient knee-jerk reactions that we've always uh, clung to. Some call it what goes around comes around in our society. Some call it karma. Uh, some call it you know, one thing or another. If you do bad, bad things come. If you do good, good things come. A lot of our pop stars talk like this on their Instagram accounts and stuff. Not that I follow them. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, um, people talk like this. 
And the problem is anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear realizes it's not true, that, that it's almost, uh, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount later, he blows this teaching away. He says, the rain falls both on the just and the unjust, and the sun shines both on the just and the unjust. So it seems like um, fortune and, and misfortune are equally meted out almost uh, haphazardly. Just It doesn't matter whether people are good or bad. Sometimes they see uh, justice and sometimes they do not. So anyway, they ask this question to Jesus, and he answers in verse 3. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus says that his suffering, his disability, is somehow a part of God's plan to bring God glory. Now, this idea that our pain is somehow a part of God's plan is a really polarizing statement. And what's interesting is it often elicits two emotions, and they're kind of the opposite of what you'd expect. Um, Those who have known some pain tend to go toward the how-dare-you direction, if they've known some pain. Um, You know, how, how could you say that God has a plan for this pain that I'm going through? But those who've really known pain this is not, not across the board, but those who've really known pain, who have lived in it and are, are regularly suffering, say, amen, which is not what I've expected, but this has been my experience. They say, preach it. Tell me that this is not just some cosmic accident. Tell me that the loving God of the universe saw me and made me in the palm of his hand and actually intended for this to be the way, that he knows exactly what he's doing and that I'm exactly a part of his plan. Preach it. Tell me. That's, that tends to be the reaction that I have seen for those who, who have suffered a lot. And the, I'd say that the answer that Jesus gives is closer to that latter answer, but we have to be careful not to sugarcoat it. It could be easy to preach that, right? Like, God knows exactly how he made you, and he did it all for a purpose, yay, yay, yay. Uh, but let's not sugarcoat it, do the American sort of twist and spin and recycle thing, because to call suffering a blessing and to call blessing suffering is dishonest, and you can only spin it maybe so far, even parts of it are true. Jesus makes clear, as does the entire Bible, uh, though though not in this passage, that suffering and death are ultimately caused by the fallenness of creation due to sin in general. Not a specific person's sin, but the fact that nature itself has fallen, creation has fallen, the fact that sin exists. And Jesus came to put an end to all of it. Not just the blind man, not just giving the blind man sight, but he came to put an end to all disordered nature. He's he's come to, to redeem everything to himself. So it's closer to that, that second emotion, not the how dare you, but the yes, tell me this is what God purposed. But also we have to know that uh, suffering was not God's intent from the beginning. It's a, there's a fallenness there that he intends to, to redeem. So I think uh, it's kind of a hard word to hear this. You know, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. But for now, let's give, let's give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. He says, we must work, this is verse 4, he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. He came back with his sight. Now, this is, this is fascinating to me. So atheists of old used to scoff at the biblical idea that we're just made of dirt, that we're just matter, that God infused, that God breathed life into. And they just thought, well, that's ridiculous. Clearly, we, you know, reasoning cannot come from just dirt. Uh, and then they learned about, you know, we, we learned about atoms and elements and molecules. 
and realize that we actually are made out of the same stuff as dirt, more or less. That whatever's in, in the earth, that's what we're made out of. We're filled with carbon, which I just find this uh, fascinating. Carbon shouldn't be here. It should be just in the Earth's core, but it comes to us from exploding planets and just absolute violence out in the cosmos that eventually, over time, dusted our, our planet, and you need it for life. Every life form on Earth has carbon in it. And I just think, man, we are literally formed with, the, with space dust. Like, that, like the, the matter of the cosmos is what God breathed into in order to make us. And here Jesus does the same thing again. So this blind man did not see, could not see, and Jesus only, in a sense, it's like he needed to just remake his eyes. So he spits in the dirt and, and rubs it together to make mud. The same sort of breathing that happened with Adam and Eve, this, this breathing into dirt or clay or dust. Jesus does the same thing again. He anoints the man's eyes, and he t- tells him to go to this aqueduct, this reservoir called Siloam. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff to say about that, but I don't think we have time tonight. But uh, he, he goes to this pool then, and when he washes it off, he can see. And uh, man, when he receives his sight back, you think, what a commotion. He would have been shouting just like all the other people who'd received these miracles. He would have been shouting, would have been so exciting. And uh, some people believed and praised what, what had happened. And others were like, no, there's, there's a trick here. That's, something's wrong. Um, and so they were asking, is that the same guy who used to sit and beg for all those years? And many said, yeah, that's him. And others were like, no, that's not him. It's just someone who looks like him. And uh, meanwhile, the formerly blind guy is, is there the whole time in verse 9. He's like, I am the man. Like, that's me, guys. I, I was, it's not someone else. I'm not someone who looks like me. I'm not in on some pun here. I'm the man. And so they said to him in verse 10, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. So he doesn't know Jesus. Jesus initiated this with him after seeing him on the road. And all he can say is, the guy called Jesus did this to me. And they want more info. So they ask where Jesus is, and he doesn't know. So they brought him to the Pharisees. And I just kind of laugh at how similar the ancients actually were to us in some ways. So just like today, when something happens, what do we do? We go to our talking heads, right? A journalist, a professor, the experts, right? What do the people on Twitter or the people on CNN have to say about this? So they go to their Pharisees, just like we go to our experts, for a narrative, for some sort of interpretation of what just happened. And John tells us something really important here, the gospel writer. He says in verse 14 that it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Now, what is the Sabbath? So just quickly, the Sabbath day was a day when all practicing Jews would cease from doing any work. And this included healing and it included kneading, which is the, you know, K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G, kneading, which is what the, the verb would be for what he did with the, the dirt and the water to make mud. Um, and so the Old Testament doesn't say that this was against the Sabbath, but in trying to respect the Sabbath, they had just fleshed out all these other rules and traditions, and they had conflated their traditions with the actual scripture, and they kind of mixed and matched them, and they called this, you know, law right from God's mouth. And so they're like, oh, he disrespected the Sabbath because he healed and he did, he needed on, on the Sabbath. But people were disagreeing because they're like, but, but he did a miracle. So clearly he's from God. And so they were disagreeing. And, and as usual, when people disagree, they, they take it up the chain. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, 
how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. And uh, I'm just thinking, man, when, when this miracle happens, you're, you're thinking, well, surely the religious rulers must praise and rejoice, right? If anyone's going to praise and rejoice, it, it should be the religious rulers because it's kind of backing up their whole point, right? That there is a God who acts and does miracles. Uh, you know, yes, a miracle worker, praise God, but that's not what they do. Instead, they're threatened and their hearts become like stone. They go right to their religiosity, not faith. They say, he broke the Sabbath. How dare he do any work on the Sabbath, even if it's healing a blind man who's been begging outside for the last 20 years. So they say he must not be from God. So they can't seem to make up their minds, and they look for another point of view, but there's really no other points of view to be had, so they just keep recycling the whole thing. It reminds me of the 24-hour news cycle, just keep rehashing the same details. So they turn back to the man who was just healed of his blindness, and they say again to him, what do you say about him, Jesus, uh, since he opened your eyes? And the man said, he is a prophet. Now, notice the turn here. I think this is interesting, that when people first learn of Jesus, it's always, there's this guy called Jesus, right? Think of in today when people learn about him. There's this figure, you know, he's like the center of Christianity or something, and he's called Jesus. But as people start to read him, if they actually take it upon themselves as a challenge to figure out for themselves what Jesus had to say, if they read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they normally don't end at that same spot. As people think on who Jesus is, they normally tend to, to, to go somewhere. Rather than, there's a guy called Jesus, they, they, they soon wind up in this kind of special territory. And this is what this blind man is doing, is he's processing what has just happened to him. He says, uh, he's, uh, he said, he's a prophet. There's something special. There's something markedly different about this guy. And I'm not sure what it is, but clearly there's something going on. And that's the first turn, I think, that people make. And his answer, he's a prophet, was no good for the religious leaders. Because if he's a prophet, that means that the religious leaders should actually listen to him and do what he says. But they saw Jesus as a threat, and they wanted to retain all their power and position. So they go into this investigative mode. Uh, the Jewish leaders did not believe that he had been blind. This is verse 18. The Jewish leaders did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. And John includes in parentheses here, his parents said these things because they feared the Jewish leaders, uh, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So it's a way to sort of pass the buck, right? Like, I don't want to deal with this. My kid is grown, ask him. And bummer for their investigation. They're like, we're going to go to the parents and we'll get to the bottom of this. And they'll just say, oh no, he just acts blind to beg or something. And they're like, nope, he was blind. He was born that way. We would know. Um, so the, the religious rulers, their whole, uh, their whole shtick is that they want to defend themselves and say, this, is not, this was not a real miracle. They want to get Jesus out of there. And uh, so they go to these parents, and the parents, of course, don't want to get in trouble. So I find this fascinating. The, the Pharisees, the religious rulers, start the whole thing over again. They're just not satisfied. So they keep going back to the starting line. Verse 24, so for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, which is not shorthand for like, praise God. It's shorthand for like, come on now, tell the truth. And they said, we know this man is a sinner. And the blind man answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. 
You get a famous lyric from that in the Amazing Grace song, that though I was blind, now I see. And it's hard to argue with that. So they said to him, again, just rehashing this, think of, this is like cable news all over the place. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And then this is probably the snarkiest line in all of the New Testament. He says, do you also want to become his disciples? Like, what, do you want to just, you want to hear this again because you want to become his disciples? And they were just like, just so offended. And they reviled him, verse 28. They reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And now this man who was just healed from being blind, he's a little bit more confident. He's, he's processed more, and he really, he's watching the people who are supposed to be on top of society bicker like, you know, I don't know if I can say this, like idiots. Uh, and, and he's like, but then he knows who Jesus is. And so he, he answers. Now he's got more confidence. Um, when the Pharisees say, we do not know where he comes from, the formerly blind man answers, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And so he's starting to do the math. He realizes if this Jesus, this prophet, this someone has the power of God, clearly he must be sent from God. Uh, And just a quick aside about these miracles, what's really fascinating is Jesus, in his lifetime, was known primarily as a worker of miracles. I mean, he was, yeah, he was known as a good and authoritative speaker, but people did not follow him out into the wilderness or the desert for three days with their kids, without food. I mean, I have a four and a two-year-old. At like 5 p.m., when they haven't quite eaten yet, but it's getting close, it is not fun to be around, okay? It's, I call it the witching hour. Uh, and can you imagine going out into the wilderness for three days without food, with kids, just to hear someone speak? Like, no one's that good of a speaker. Like, even our greatest speaker of the last hundred years, probably Martin Luther King Jr., people would go for a day and wait to hear him speak, but they would bring food, okay? Can you imagine three days in the desert just waiting? They were going for the miracles. I mean, if you, if you supposedly do a miracle in the Twin Cities, it would be easy to to fake it because all of the people that supposedly are healed could sort of just vanish. We have, four, we have 4 million people in the metro area, but in these communities, often there were villages of 200, 400, 500, 700 people. If the blind guy by the side of the road for 20 years begging gets healed and, well, guess what? It didn't actually work or he very quickly lost his eyesight. Jesus would have lost all of his esteem right away, but for three years, people kept going after him to see the miracles. They're like, all right, well, we'll hear the preaching too, but what we want is to see the miracle. So primarily, he was known as a miracle worker. And it's, it's not so much the job of the person who believes in the miracles to defend that they were real. I think sociologically, someone who says those miracles, like all 70 of them weren't real, they have a huge uphill battle to fight. How could, how could you get that many people to starve in the wilderness for three days just to hear speaking? Anyway, that's a, that's a little aside. So this, uh, the, the blind man, formerly blind man, is starting to do the math, and he realizes this Jesus guy is, is sent from God. And the religious rulers can't handle that. They answer him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? Like, how dare you teach us? And they cast him out. They excommunicated him from this, the, wherever they were, the Jewish temple or synagogue. And when they say he was born in utter sin, they're actually dropping back to the very first worldview that's first pitched at Jesus, the question. You know, was this man... 
blind because of his sin or because of the sin of, of someone else. That's what they're pulling on. Hey, this man was, you were born in utter sin. And so they're, they're saying to him, either you committed a sin, this is, this is no joke, this is in uh, the, the Midrash, the Jewish teaching, that either he committed a sin in the womb, that, that was a belief, or somehow his parents had sinned. Anyone with little kids is like, yeah, no, I can, I can, I can agree with that. No. Uh, <laughs> when people are challenged in their worldview, even with good facts, they often don't change their mind. They just tend to double down and hate and go back to whatever it was before. They try to get, it's like it's too uncomfortable to change, so they get rid of all the evidence. If anyone's pushing them from the side with facts they don't like, they just sort of excommunicate them from their life to go back to whatever system they find comfortable. And that's what they're doing here. Um, a text just came through on my iPad that my wife is praying for me while I preach. That's, that's encouraging. That's encouraging to hear. I thought I turned this on uh, Do Not Disturb, but that's, that's great. Um, so the religious rulers doubled down on judging him, and instead of praising the miracle, they excommunicated him from the synagogue. Just, you know, get rid of all the evidence as fast as possible. And that is religion for you. Now, not true religion. The Bible says true religion is to care for orphans and widows in their distress. But man-made religion, which tends to, uh, that tends to calcify the human heart and do stuff like this. Let's ignore miracles on purpose and then erase all the evidence and get rid of these people. So anyway, meanwhile, while all this is happening, Jesus isn't there. He's actually out and about somewhere else. And he hears not just about the miracle, which he knew would... would he didn't see the man receive his sight. He knew it was going to happen once he went and washed in this pool. And so he hears about the excommunication. That's what he hears about, not the miracle, but the excommunication. And so he goes and looks for the blind man and finds him. And I find this interesting that the blind man had never seen Jesus, right? He had, the mud was put on his eyes, but he was not yet seeing. And then he went off to the pool. So as Jesus approaches him, the blind man has maybe only seen a couple dozen people since he's received his sight, and he doesn't know who Jesus is. I just, I think that would be amazing to be there and see this. And when Jesus finds him, this is the first thing out of his mouth. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Now, here's where the blind man knows something that we don't. What on earth is a son of man? This used to bother me so much when I was 18 and 19 and first starting to read the New Testament. I was like, you know, Jesus, why aren't you calling yourself the Son of God? It would just make it a lot easier for all of us. But this is actually Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. He refers to himself more as this than any other name in the entire New Testament, the Son of Man. But it was so obvious to anyone in that society. The blind man got it. Everyone else would have got exactly what he was meaning because they were intensely expecting the Messiah. They were awaiting the Savior who would come. And one of the key texts, not just in the entire Old Testament, but that in their society, in Second Temple Judaism, what they were really hoping on, really uh, pointed toward a few texts. And one of the, one of the key ones um, was from Daniel 7, and it talks about a son of man. And let me just, I'll read it for you. You can flip there if you want. It's verse Daniel seven thirteen, but I'll, I'll read it out loud here. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. This is capitalized, so this is God here. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and to him is the Son of Man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So what took me till graduate school to learn is now yours for free, that the Son of Man name comes primarily from that 
that text, that Jesus is, he's, he, he's saying, you know the, the one that's sent by God, the one who's given all the dominion, all the authority, you know the, you know the Great Commission verse uh, that we all go to from Matthew, Matthew 28, 18? That is directly pulling from Daniel 7, for, like word for word, pound for pound, uh, he's saying all of these things, the dominion, authority, giving a kingdom, all nations, tribes, tongues, all, F, all, all different you know, ethnic groups will, will come worship him. He's pulling that straight from there. And so Jesus is saying that this descendant of David, that, that the one who would bring the new covenant, that the entire world would worship him in their native language, that do you believe in that guy? And of course, the blind man would know who he's talking about in terms of the role so when he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? The guy's like, well, yeah, I believe in Daniel 7. I believe the Son of Man is coming. But who is he that I may believe in him? And Jesus says, you have seen him. Imagine hearing you have seen him when you've only seen a dozen people in your whole life, right? You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. You have seen him, and it's this guy that's talking to you right now. Jesus says, the Son of Man is me. I am that Messiah, that sent one, the eternal King that will rule forever, that is sent by God. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. I just think this is so, so fascinating. When, when people try to worship a prophet or an angel, the angel stops them and says, don't worship me. You got the wrong guy. It's, it's God you need to worship. But this man worships Jesus, and Jesus doesn't do anything to stop it right? Because Jesus knows who he is. If you take a chance on Jesus, if you truly and fairly come to the, the four biographies that were written of him, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first four books of the New Testament, I think you'll have a similar series of turns as the blind man. First, it's, there's this guy called Jesus, and people talk about him or something. And then it's, well, there's something unique. There's something going on there. Maybe he's a prophet, or maybe he's a healer. Maybe he's a uh, a good moral teacher or something. People kind of go that route. But then, as they keep dwelling on this, they end in this place where they say, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he is the one sent by God. And if you take that chance, if you look through the scriptures for yourself and see for yourself, what does Jesus have to say about himself? I believe you'll, you'll wind up in the same spot. And so what's the end of this story? After the man worshiped Jesus, and, and, and then Jesus spoke one last little paragraph to the group that was around him. Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? It's actually, I like some of the other translations get it better. In the Greek, it's clear. They're expecting a no answer. It's, we're not also blind, are we? And the expected answer is, of course, well, no, you guys are good. You know, we're, not, we're not blind, are we? Right? It's expecting a no. That's how we, we sort of tee up a question saying what the answer should be. We use it in passive-aggressive uh, passive fighting all the time. Uh, so we're not also blind, are we? And Jesus says to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. And I just love this. They're like, there's no way he's taking a shot at us. Let's, let's clarify this, because it kind of sounds like he is. And then, like, he, they're expecting to hear, like, oh, yeah, you guys are good to go. Pharisees are great. But he doesn't tell them that. He says, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But since you claim to see, but don't actually see, that's what makes you all the more guilty. And what's interesting is, you know, here he's not talking about physical eyesight, but he's talking about the human condition, that we are all spiritually blind. We are Spiritually, we are as blind as a bat, just like this guy, in terms of his actual eyesight, was that blind. 
And this is how blind we all are spiritually. They were ready to pronounce this formerly blind man to be a sinner, but now look at this great reversal. Now they're the sinners in this story, right? So he was blind. That's supposed to mean that he was bad, but now all of a sudden he, he can see. So what does that do with their narrative of him being a sinner, right? Now he can see, and the Pharisees are the one called blind. And there's just this, this great reversal that happens in, in Jesus, right? The last will be first. The humble are exalted. The, those who exalt themselves shall be humbled. He's always flipping the tables on people, literally, too. Uh, thank you. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it just came to me. So, as we think about this. So then why, why does suffering exist, not only in this story, but in, in the entire biblical canon? The answer that we have from the Bible is that suffering exists because we live in a fallen world. And just like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that good things happen to good people and bad people. And bad things happen to both the bad people and good people. Of course, no one's good, but in terms of our general sense of like someone being a good person, um, bad and good comes upon uh, both people. And it's the opposite of karma. It seems to be indiscriminate and totally unfair as to how this shakes out. Some people are born toward the end of the maze. They might have a couple of turns to make until they're out and home free. And other people are born like smack dab at the beginning of it. And there's just like wildness and like jungle in front of them for 78 challenges until they would get out of it. And that's just how, that's just how it is. But um, Jesus came to, Jesus came in a sense to reverse all of this suffering. He came to reverse the curse of sin and death, healing not only us, but also giving us eternal life with him. So the blind man, in a sense, gets a, a foretaste of what Jesus came to do. But he doesn't do that for everyone on earth. But he, will, he is opening a way for us all to have this with him eternally in heaven. For those who believe in Jesus, they believe that we will live with him forever. Some of the last words of the Bible in Revelation, it says that God will dwell with us, with them, and that they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away." Though this passage gives us just a better idea of why suffering exists, it's definitely not the main point of the passage. The even more pressing question of, uh, of the passage is not, why is there pain? What's interesting is that's what starts the passage. Hey, why is there suffering? Why is there pain? But it ends with, who is Jesus? That's, that, ends the, that sort of becomes the focus that Jesus moved towards. And what's fascinating here is that Jesus makes it clear that he's not just a teacher, right? He's not just a local miracle worker or healer. The man starts worshiping him, and he doesn't stop him. Anybody who met Jesus quickly had to reckon with this fact that he was a prophet or a miracle worker. He was something different, and they had to chew on that for a bit and, and figure out what he was. So I wasn't, I wasn't going to do this, but this is one of my favorite things. I think it was as I was first becoming a reader and someone that cared about thinking, uh, I was reading C.S. Lewis, kind of the I made a deal with myself that I would not mention C.S. Lewis from the pulpit for the first four weeks because he's just so, I think, overused by people. But he, I love this. He says that a man who said the kind of things that Jesus said about himself could not ever be a good moral teacher. And that's what almost anyone in society who doesn't follow him would say. Like, oh, he was just a good moral teacher, you know, like any of the other religious leaders. But I don't, I don't submit to him. I don't, I don't think he's actually the son of God or anything divine. I just think he's a a good moral teacher. And Lewis just slayed this. He's like, he can absolutely not be a good moral teacher unless he was right about who he said he was, right? If, if, if he was a, 
if he was not who he said he was, then that would make him the most lunatic, liar, savage, masochistic deceiver of all of human history, right? That if you say you're the son of God, that you came to redeem the world, and that if you believe in me, you'll live forever, and it's not right, does that make you a great moral teacher? It can't. You're like the most deceptive person that's ever lived. And so we're kind of left with these choices, like, is Jesus a liar, or is he just like a raging lunatic, or what's the third option? He could be Lord, and that's, they call that the trilemma, that he can, be a, he can be a liar or a lunatic, or he can be Lord, but he can't really be anything else. And I think this is fascinating. If you ask people to take this challenge to actually read what's written about Jesus, if you, a lot of people will say, yeah, I think he's probably a liar, or I think he's probably a lunatic, but then when you actually sit down with them and have them read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they, may, they take the same turns that the blind man took in, in thinking, well, you know, he's just a guy. And then, well, there's something going on there. I actually think, given all of the, the hatred and all of the little debates that were thrown at him and just how beautifully and, and wonderfully he handled everything and how much he cared for the poor, they think, I don't think he's a lunatic. I don't think he's a liar. And they slowly kind of are brought kind of kicking and screaming to the point where they're like, well, if he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic, then, you know, what does that leave me? And uh, so I encourage you guys to take this challenge yourself or if your friends, loved ones, coworkers are in that zone right now where they're considering, like, do I, is, is Jesus just one more good guy or is he actually this, who, who he said he was? Um, I think that reading through those books is the most powerful answer to that question. I think it brings people's spirits to the right answer. What's, what's fascinating about Jesus is he, he's not like a Muhammad who said he was the prophet, the principal megaphone of God. You know, he's not like a Moses who received revelation from God. He's not like a Joseph Smith who says he has the light or a truer revelation. Jesus stares straight at his audience and then through time, us, and he says, not I have the light, he says, I am the light. He doesn't say, you know, I, I can point you on, a, on a, a good path. He says, I am the light, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There is no way to the Father except through me. He doesn't claim, like others, to deliver the words of God. He claims to be the word of God itself, through whom all of creation was created. And he says, I and the Father are one. Jesus looks at us through the scriptures, and just like he said to the blind man, I am he, I am the one you've heard of. And we, who are blind spiritually, we can allow Jesus to anoint the eyes of our heart and say, Lord, I believe, and we can worship him. Or we can play the liar or lunatic card, which is what the Pharisees were doing, and we can keep moving the goalposts to, as to like, what will I need to believe in this person? You know, not, not until I get video and DNA evidence will I believe in Jesus. You know, but of course, no figure in the ancient world could ever provide that kind of evidence. And I, I think uh, a challenge for us here today or, or for the fr- friends that you're maybe uh, speaking with about faith I think it's a good challenge to decide today what kind of evidence would you need to, to see, to consider Jesus' claims as being the Son of God. Like, what, what would do it for you? What's available in the ancient world that you could actually say, if I, if I got that, then, uh, then maybe I'd, I'd consider this. You know, would it be more manuscript evidence than any, any other ancient figure by a mile? Well, check. You know, we have that. Uh, maybe attestation by, like, a pagan scholar or opposing religious people as to what was said about him at the time. We have that. Uh, well, you know, maybe if he, if he claimed to be the sent one of God, I'd expect him, like, to change the world or to, like, start something huge and unprecedented in human history. And when you think about the church, it's just, this is fascinating, that the church is the largest 
multicultural, multi-ethnic, most uh, impactful human movement that has ever been on planet Earth. And he started that from like the middle of nowhere. It's not like he was in Rome. He started it from a backwater. Some people think, well, I'd expect a lasting influence, you know, greater than all of the emperors, philosophers, rulers, and tyrants combined. Okay, we have that. None of us are here talking about, you know, uh, Napoleon right now. Um, some people say, well, I'd expect a vast amount of scholarship. I, I'd, I'd still expect all these different factions of people to be rigorously arguing about what he said 2,000 years later. It's like, okay, yep, there's entire, you know, an entire libraries full of this stuff. Some people say, well, I'd expect his followers to be willing to go through some of the worst things and never you know, back down. They wouldn't just get you know, rich and happy off of his, his life. But of course, after Judas betrayed, the 10 that were left, or the 11 that were left, 10 of them all went to their deaths as martyrs to keep speaking. They had so many opportunities to stop. I mean, these guys were just cowards, and then three days later, they were out proclaiming the truth. It's like, well, what happened? And it's because they saw Jesus rose again from the dead, and these guys had, I mean, decades to stop what they were doing, but they would not stop. And so a question to consider is, you know, what are you waiting on? I think this is a great challenge to a postmodern person is, you owe it to yourself to look into what's true. Read it for yourself. You know, th throughout most of human history, we look to institutions. What does the church say is true? What does the state say is true? But now we only look to ourselves. Like, what do, what do I sense when I read this? Um, and though I don't love that that's necessarily the situation we're in, I'll work with it while I have to, right? So this is a great challenge to actually read the Gospels for yourself and see, was he a liar or a lunatic or was he who he said he was? And as you read his words, I think uh, maybe you'll come to believe it. This Jesus character, Jesus of Nazareth, demands a judgment. He's a, he's a crisis figure. He's, he's this fork in the road upon which we have to take one turn or the other. We have to either, like the Pharisees, just try to bury him under a, a rug or excommunicate anyone who talks about him and walk away, or we have to believe him. We can't waffle forever. He demands an answer. So I challenge you to read through the books. And I pray that at the end of reading through these books, that you would say, Lord, I believe, just like the blind man. And uh, anyone here would love to help you through that. We'd love to chat with you afterward, and we could do like a one-to-one -one study or something like that. It'd be fun. So let me, uh, let me just pray to close us. Lord, uh, we, we thank you for healing the eyes of the blind man, and we thank you, too, that though we were spiritually blind, that you opened our eyes, that you anointed the, our eyes, and that you gave us sight, Lord. We do pray that, uh, that there are people here who would take this challenge, they would read the words that you wrote, that they would seriously consider that you can't be a great moral teacher if, in fact, you're lying about being the Messiah, the Savior. So we pray that people would take this challenge, that they would truly consider, like the blind man, who is this person who opened my eyes? We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.